Imagine, if you will, a podcast. A podcast journey beyond that which is known to man. It exists in both fandom and discovery, in viewing and critiquing. My name is Matt Hurt. Welcome to Anthology. And welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. If this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast exploring science fiction anthology storytelling during television's first golden age, beginning with The Twilight Zone. Each podcast, I share my thoughts on an episode of this iconic series as a first-time viewer, as well as share some trivia about the episode. I then end each podcast with a bonus review of a movie or show related to this week's episode. You can find more of Anthology at anthologypod.com. And if you want to contact me, like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, tweet me at obsessiveviewer, send an email to matt at obsessiveviewer.com, or call and leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099. If you like what you hear and want to support the podcast, please head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review. The more ratings and reviews I get, the easier it will be for people to find the show in iTunes search results, and the more the more listeners and discussion we can get going in this podcast. In this week's episode, I'll be discussing Third from the Sun. It's the 14th episode of The Twilight Zone's first season, and it aired on January 8th, 1960. For my bonus review this week, I'll take a look at Now is Tomorrow, an unaired sci-fi anthology series pilot episode written by Richard Matheson that predates The Twilight Zone. All right, so let's just dive right in. As always, the episode review of The Twilight Zone will be incredibly spoiler-filled, so if you haven't watched the episode, uh, close out this podcast, watch the episode, and come back. It's available on Netflix and Hulu and um, Amazon Prime. I think there are actually episodes on um, on YouTube in full, or at least there used to be. I'm not sure if there are anymore. All right, here's the episode summary for Third from the Sun. Will Sturka, a scientist who works at a military base run by the government, has been producing a great number of H-bombs in preparation for imminent nuclear war. Sturka realizes that there is only one way to escape, steal an experimental top-secret spacecraft stored at the base. He plans to bring his co-worker Jerry Ryden along with their wives and Sturka's daughter Jody. The two plot for months, secretly supplying the ship and making arrangements for their departure. When production of the bombs increases, Sturka realizes that time is running short. He and Raiden decide to put their plan in action, take their families to the craft to tour it, and overpower the guards and take off. Unfortunately, Sturka's superior, Carling, overhears the two men talking. Later that night, everyone gathers for a game of cards where Raiden reveals that he has found a place to go, a small planet 11 million miles away. During the game... Carling unexpectedly appears at the door. Though he smiles and acts polite, he makes it clear that he knows what the group is planning. He also hints at trouble. A lot can happen in 48 hours. After he leaves, Sturka and Raiden inform the women that they must leave that very night. When the five arrive at the side of the spacecraft, Sturka and Raiden spot their contact, who flashes a light. When the contact steps forward, though, he is revealed to be Carling, armed with a gun. He forces Sturka and Raiden away from the gate and prepares to call the authorities the women who have been who have been waiting in the car the women who have been waiting in the car watch in horror as carling orders them out jody suddenly throws the car's door open knocking the gun from carling's hand and giving the men enough time to overpower him the group rushes into the ship fighting off the guards that rush them later that evening the group has safely escaped their doomed planet and are on course 
write in comments that he cannot believe that there is a planet full of people like themselves. Sterka smiles as he points out on the ship's viewer their mysterious destination, 11 million miles away, the third planet from the sun, called Earth. Okay, starring in this episode as William Sterka is Fritz Weaver. He's actually still alive, according to IMDb, and he appears in two episodes of The Twilight Zone. Uh, this one, of course, and season two's The Obsolete Man, which actually I know nothing about The Obsolete Man, but uh, from what I know from the title, it's it's a very, it's an iconic episode of the series. So I'm looking forward to getting to that eventually. Uh, Fritz Weaver actually also appeared in the movie Failsafe, which kind of plays with some of the some similar concepts and themes as, as this episode of The Twilight Zone. And he was also actually in one episode of the 1985 Twilight Zone Revival series. So that's cool. Playing Jerry Ryden is Joe Moross. Uh, this is his first of two episodes of The Twilight Zone. His second one is season three's The Little People. He also appeared in one episode of The Outer Limits. And he, al- he also served in World War II and was stationed in Hawaii. And rounding out the cast is Edward Andrews as Carling. He died in 1985, and kind of somewhat interesting, I guess. His last two credits were for Sixteen Candles and Gremlins. I think he played Molly Ringwald's uh, grandfather in Sixteen Candles. Um, this is his first of two Twilight Zone episodes. He later appears in Season 5's You Drive. So we'll get to him eventually down the line. Writer for this episode, of course, is Rod Serling. Uh, it's based on the short story Third from the Sun by Richard Matheson. Third from the Sun comes from the short story collection of the same name that was published in 1955. And the more that I see the work of Richard Matheson and adaptations of his work, the more I just really want to read his his written work. So I'm going to eventually get through uh, that down the road. Director for this episode is Richard L. Bear. He actually passed away last March in March of 2015, at the age of 101. And uh, he directed seven episodes in total of The Twilight Zone. His next one will be The Purple Testament, which is here in about five episodes. So looking forward to that one. Okay, so this episode I'm really excited to review, actually, because just as a concept, this this episode is absolutely terrifying um, by today's standards and especially in 1960. Uh, it's all about people anticipating the end of the world and grappling with their role in bringing it out and, and bringing an end to the world and how they are protecting themselves and their families from it. Uh, Sturka's subtle terror um, in the third or fourth scene when he's talking to his daughter at home and the way that he tries to shift the blame and responsibility is just very powerful writing. Like his daughter, his daughter mentions that he builds a lot of bombs and a lot of he plays, uh, not plays, but he works with gas, gas uh, bombs and things like that. And so he delivers this line about how he's a cog in a machine and look at it this way, that a bomb has several different millions of pieces and that he's just one piece of this bomb. And then he starts to trail off and you kind of get the sense that he, that this is something that a mantra that he's been giving and a mantra that he's been reciting over and over again. And I think in the face of imminent doom and the end of the world in the next 48 hours, I think in the face of that is when he kind of realizes that the facade is over, that, that what he's been saying is 
not true and that he is as culpable as anyone else. Um, it's, it's very, very powerful. And like that, like just that, that line, that line of dialogue is just incredible. And then, uh, the way that the episode just unfurls its plot is just so, so great. Um, in that scene that I mentioned where Sturka is talking to his daughter and when he's trying to get her to stay home for the night, like when, when I saw it, when I saw the episode for the first time, all I thought was that this is him being desperate to spend time with his family before the end comes. And it's just so steeped in fear that it plays really well. And then as the episode progresses, of course we know that he's keeping her home so that they can execute their plan to escape. But just, it plays so well in both of those scenarios or both of those contexts that he is desperate to spend time with his family and he just, he wants to execute this plan. And up until this point, the episode was so, so grounded in reality that it just makes Honestly, it it makes this the scariest episode of the show by far so far in its in its run. Um of course, I'm watching all of these as a first-time viewer, so this is my 14th episode of The Twilight Zone, and it's just man, this this episode is just so well done and and it was really effective on me. And then another point in in that same scene that that whole scene in the house where where Sturka is talking to his family is just incredible just absolutely incredible um when Jody asks her parents why everyone is afraid and she says that there's just something in the air and she's she's been able to notice that something is wrong Sturka's response is the highlight of the entire episode for me i just want to single out the performance of, of Fritz Weaver in this in this scene because it's the way that he delivers this line is just absolutely stunning. Uh, he just basically talks about how innovations get subverted and twisted into something crooked and devious until it's too late. And there's you can hear the regret and the disconnect that he feels with his work as a whole in his delivery of that. And it's just astonishing. It's, it really hammers home the terror of what's happening to these people and the entire planet and the, I want to say human race, but you know, it's not, it's not earth, but still it's, they're basically humans. And that's another, I'll get to that in a second, but it's just, it's just so well done. This entire scene where he's talking to his family. And I guess this is as good a time as any to bring up the Dutch tilt, technique um which i've talked i've referenced in my reviews in the past that there's a lot of skewed angles and i've never known the technical term for it and today i learned that it's called the dutch tilt or dutch angle it's where the camera is just sits at an angle and the director really made a lot of use out of it in this episode and like like i said the twilight zone is no stranger to this technique I think I referenced it in Where Is Everybody in the first ever episode. And I referenced it as as early as uh, last last week in my review of The Four of Us Are Dying. But in this episode, it's, it's almost every single scene is shot in this style. And it just conveys how... It conveys so well how surreal this whole scenario is for the characters. And 
in a few specific shots at in Sturka's house, there's the camera sits at a lower angle and it's kind of angled up and tilted um, from a lower angle. And it just gives such an eerie and candid feel. It's almost like we are we are part of a surveillance unit that's just watching them. And it's, it's very unsettling to me and it was very, very effective. And I just, I loved the overuse of this technique and how it really showed how just messed up this world is and how surreal the circumstances are of the story. I just, I thought that that was just a beautiful marriage of visual style and visual technique and uh, visual storytelling really. And it was just, I, I was just all about that. <laughs> the second act of the episode reveals, is, is when it's revealed that they're stealing a spaceship. And the scene where the co-conspirators plot out their destination, it really telegraphs the twist at the end. Um, it's where, where uh, Sterka and Raiden are, are basically talking about their destination. And... It's just, it's really clear, just even from the episode title, Third from the Sun, you can infer that it's going to refer to Earth, and the destination that they're going to is is filled with people with um, a language much like their own. It's It's a little bit... It's a little bit obvious to me, but it's fine because the subtext is so much more important than the actual twist. And also, I <laughs> um, spoilers for an episode of Goosebumps, but uh, there was an episode and in, in book of Goosebumps. Um, oh, what was it? Um, the Cam- uh, Escape from Camp Nightmare or something like that, I think. I, I didn't write it down in my notes. But there's an episode of, of that where I distinctly remember that episode taking taking the ending of this episode. And so that was my first time seeing that ending. So I kind of had that in the back of my mind. Um, so that's, I mean, that's a nice bit of trivia. Also, that uh, R.L. Stein uh, used this, uh, this ending for that. I actually really want to go through Goosebumps and, uh, and, and read them again because I haven't read them since I was a kid just to see how much how much influence R.L. Stein had from Rod Serling and from different horror writers also. Now that I'm, I've read a little bit more than just R.L. Stein, <laughs> like I did when I was a kid. So after they've discussed their destination and their plan and everything, they start to play cards. And then that's when Carling arrives at the house and I'm just louding praise upon this episode, but it's so warranted because this episode is just firing on all cylinders because the tension when Carling arrives at the house escalates so quickly and the episode just transitions into this conspiracy spy thriller and that coupled with the Dutch tilt technique that's been in effect the entire episode and is not is relentless in this scene as well. It just becomes a very intense sequence and I just loved it for that. And the tension itself was just palpable. And when Carling, because you already know, judging uh, in that kind of goofy scene where Carling uh, reveals himself at the window after Raiden and Sturka have left the room after they've discussed their plans. You already know that Carling knows what's up. He knows that the, he knows what they're doing. So he's he's not necessarily messing with them. He's just it's like he's just getting a feel for them. And their main concern is to conceal the note the notes that they had about the destination and everything because they think that they're still free and clear. And just the way that uh the character Carling says the line, I would have guessed Sturka here was a good gambler. It just 
it just stings. Like I, I love that. And it sets up the reveal later that, uh, that I'm going to talk about here in a second. It, it sets it up pretty well, but I honestly, that scene where they're playing cards and Carling is kind of messing with them and talking to them in that double speak is like that scene feels like the climax of the episode, to be honest. Like the reveal of Carling with the flashlight and the airfield is effective and tense in its own right, but the tension doesn't reach the level of the card game scene, not by any stretch for me. And I mean, the, the kind of, not hokey, but the, the, the kind of just sudden action scene where the, where the men take out Carling and then they get on to the, everyone gets onto the spaceship and they fly away to safety. I mean, that, that's kind of cliche, I guess. Um, just a little bit. It's, it's kind of just almost a fun action scene, <laughs> but it's not a problem because the episode ends soon after that with the two men and their families on the spaceship in space and Serling's closing narration. And the reveal that Earth is the destination that they're going to and that there are aliens this entire time. It's not even that they're aliens the entire time. Because although the ending that they're not on Earth is telegraphed pretty hard earlier in the episode and in the title, just the subtext of it and the message behind it in this episode is just staggering. Um, by ending it with a shot of Earth, it's it's as if Serling is holding a mirror to us and warning us that we may bring about our end soon. And it's just incredibly powerful storytelling and incredibly powerful message delivery. It's 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 astounding to me. I loved it. And I'll talk a little bit about cultural sub like cultural subtext and cultural implications and stuff like that. This episode was somewhat seemed somewhat prescient about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, this episode aired January 20th, or, wow, January 8th, 1960, and the Cuban Missile Crisis took place in October of 1962, and two, I, I have no idea, I have no context only what media portrays of, of what the climate was like in the early 60s and during the Cold War and everything like that, but to see this episode of the show during like the Cold War when everything's up in the air, no one knows what's going to happen, and to see this episode where where manufacturing hum- people are manufacturing weapons, justifying their manufacturing of weapons, and then cutting cutting bait and leaving the planet because they're about to destroy it, and then to go through something as harrowing as the Cuban Missile Crisis and just two and a half years later is just is just incredible to me. And my other piece of cultural relevance in this episode is that in the scene where Sturka is talking to his wife in their bedroom, uh I noticed there are twin beds. And I thought that that was interesting just as a piece of set design. I don't know if there's anything to it, but I it made me wonder if that was a kind of standards and practices thing of the time um that they didn't want to show just one bed where a man and a woman would God forbid fornicate, but uh, yeah, I just I thought that was an interesting thing. It was probably nothing because I know that Serling was very adamant about not having censorship, but that's not really the same as censorship. It's just maybe it's just a sign of the times, really. But I thought it was an interesting thing to view in the context as a as a twenty nine year old in twenty sixteen viewing it for the first time. Okay, I don't really have much trivia for this episode, just that the spaceship set at the end of the episode was the same set used in 1956's Forbidden Planet. And I really like the set design of it, and I think that it suits this episode very well. And if you haven't seen Forbidden Planet yet, check it out, because it is amazing. I actually watched it 
uh, twice last year, once at the uh, at the Artcraft Theater in Franklin, Indiana. It's this antique theater. It's the historic Artcraft Theater in Franklin, and it's I mean they play tons of uh, older movies on thirty five millimeter. Like that's one of the things that they like. They will only screen thirty five millimeter if like as long as it's available to them like like that they seek that out first and foremost they'll go th- jump through all kinds of hoops but i saw it during this uh marathon that they had called they called it sci-fright frenzy it was a ton of special um of screenings of older movies i'll talk more about that next week actually so yeah so so my closing thoughts on this episode of the twilight zone is I just, I really, really adore this episode. It's a cautionary tale born from the Cold War. It's terrifying. It's chilling. It's suspenseful. It carries this hefty, like very important message and almost a plea to humanity. And although the twist is somewhat expected to, from my perspective, it's delivered in service of the episode's message and subtext, and it's just handled so beautifully. It's it's really hard for me to say, but this might be better than Walking Distance for me so far, and it, I'll reflect on the season as a whole when I finish it um, in, in a, probably, a, what, few months maybe? Um, but this episode just blew me away. It was such a strong episode. I absolutely loved it. It was firing on all cylinders. The performances were amazing, and I just, I was I was in love with this episode, so... Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's my review of episode 14 of the Twilight Zone, third from the sun. And before we move on to the bonus content for this episode, here is a highlight from the 161st episode of The Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast that I host with my friends Mike and Tiny over at obsessiveviewer.com. The genie was like my favorite character ever. Right. Um, Robin Williams, you know, may he rest in peace, mm-hmm. was beyond genius when it came to comedy and comedic timing. And he did a couple of the voices in that movie, but mostly with the genie. And, and it's, it was just, it was all improv- improvised for the most part. Huh. Um, he he just, it's, it's incredible how that character was able to appeal to children, um, but still... But still have like jokes that adults only adults would get really right. Um, You can find the Obsessive Viewer on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and anywhere else podcasts are found. And you can find the episode you just heard a clip from at obsessiveviewer.com/ov161. Okay, so my bonus content for this week is actually something I'm I'm pretty excited to talk about here because I just, I found it kind of on a whim or just, just randomly when doing some search, doing some Googling and stuff for, for a past episode, I just stumbled upon now is tomorrow. It's this unaired pilot episode for a sci-fi anthology series hosted by uh, Charles Bickford from 1958. It never aired and for instance, like there's there's hardly any information that I can find on this on this show. Um, maybe I didn't dig deep enough, but 
I mean, it's an unaired pilot from 1958. It's, it's viewable in its entirety in three video segments that were uploaded by someone on YouTube. It's so you can watch it on YouTube and that's pretty much the only place you can find it. And apparently this pilot episode was titled Thy Will Be Done. And the only way that I found the title for this episode is it's the title was found on page 321 of the book, uh, The Twilight and Other Zones, The Dark Worlds of Richard Matheson, a book that I'm not I'm not sure is even in print anymore. I, I was glad that I stumbled upon this and I was glad that it was available on YouTube because it actually it's eerily appropriate to bring it up in this episode as a a bonus content review because for for starters the episode was written by Richard Matheson of course so it shares that commonality but the plots are are surprisingly similar I'll start out by just saying that the IMDb description for tale or I almost said tales of tomorrow um the IMDb description of now is tomorrow which is listed as just a TV movie because it wasn't picked up and never aired or anything. But the IMDb description for the show is a show about looking ahead with stories of people today pursuing their destinies in the world of tomorrow. So, I mean, that's kind of a vague description, but I think that it, I think that it, it has kind of a clear connotation for what the direction of the show would have been had it, had it been picked up and gone forward. And I kind of wonder if this pilot like I said, I know hardly anything about the the business of of creating this pilot and and marketing it and anything. So everything that I say to this regard is going to be pure conjecture. But I kind of wonder if if this show had had been picked up and and blew up, what would have happened with the Twilight Zone? Because this this show was created a year before the Twilight Zone aired and. I mean, the Twilight Zone redefined television. It redefined redefined science fiction, and it redefined the anthology sh- series, basically. So, I kind of wonder what impact. I I don't know. I honestly don't know what would have happened if Now Is Tomorrow was was a success or 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 what. But that's that's pure conjecture. Like I said, I don't know anything about the actual production of it. I just stumbled upon it on YouTube. So here is a description of the episode itself. And I'm not going to spoil exactly what happens here. I I do think that if you like the Twilight Zone and and value my opinion, <laughs> you'll get some enjoyment out of uh, Now Is Tomorrow, the the pilot. I think I think honestly, if you haven't seen it yet, I think you'll really dig it. So so here's here's my synopsis of of the episode. My spoiler free synopsis. The pilot episode follows David Blair, a captain in the U.S. Armed Forces who is part of a special unit trained and assigned to monitor a button that would instantly launch the U.S.'s nuclear arsenal. The episode shows us the mental torment that the unit goes through, knowing that they could end the world at the push of a button. As Blair's sanity begins to slip, he stubbornly believes he can live with the pressure of the job. And that's all I'll say about the actual plot of the episode, and I'll go into a little bit more detail as I get into my my brief review of it. But uh, for the most part, that's basically the synopsis of the episode, and I highly recommend checking it out. Um, now is Tomorrow was created by Burt Rosen and Harve Bennett. Um, Burt Rosen didn't really have that much in his credits, um, at least anything particularly science fiction related that I could see. But Bennett was a producer on Star Trek's 
two through five. So Rathacon to what is that? The Undiscovered Country? I don't, I'm not sure which one uh, Star Trek five is, but the episode was written by Richard Matheson and it was directed by, and this was pretty neat. It was directed by Irvin Kirchner, who obviously directed Empire Strikes Back and Robocop two. But I thought that was, that was pretty interesting. That was, that was interesting. Uh, the episode was hosted by Charles Bickford, which it starts out with a kind of similar, like on screen presence of the host. And he speaks about kind of the general themes of the episode that you're about to see. And then it ends the same. It, it ends with him on screen too. Um, Charles Bickford, I'm not too familiar with him, but I mean, he had 112 acting credits that dated all the way back to 1929. Um, however, this seems to be his only sci-fi anthology related work, uh, starring in the episode as Blair is Robert Culp, who I don't have much information on him. I didn't look up much information on him. He, he hasn't appeared in any other sci-fi anthology shows, but I do want to point out two credits on his, on his filmography. He played a former astronaut in an episode of the nineties sitcom wings, um, the episode was called The Wrong Stuff, and in the episode he was basically a former astronaut who Joe and Brian Hackett, the owners of an airline in Wings, um, reached out to to be a sponsor for the airline. And j- I just want to say just real quickly, Wings is one of my favorite shows from my childhood, and I love it, and it's on Hulu, and you should check it out. Also, another credit on Robert Culp's filmography is that he was <laughs> – he was the narrator of the music video for Eminem and Dr. Dre's Guilty Conscience in 2000. And I thought that, that was interesting. The only reason I bring it up is that it kind of has a, a, a very clear like Twilight Zone influence. And I thought that that was, that was interesting. Next on the cast list is Sidney Pollock as uh, Stein. Uh, he was in one episode of The Twilight Zone, which we'll talk about him in Season 2, Episode 9, The Trouble with Templeton. And, of course, he was a renowned director. He directed The Way We Were, Three Days of the Condor, Tootsie, and several others. Rounding out the cast is Simon Scott as Colonel Hilliard. We'll see him uh, again here in a few weeks in The Twilight Zone Season 1, Episode 18, The Last Flight as Major Wilson. So here's my review for Now is Tomorrow. Like I said, it's just by pure happenstance that I found it, and there are just some really interesting parallels between this and Third from the Sun. Both deal with the threat of nuclear winter and man's hand in creating it. What, what Now is Tomorrow does is it deals with the mental anguish brought on by the idea that you could end the world at a push of a button. And it's kind of silly because the button is literally labeled peace and war. So you turn a dial and once you turn the dial to war, the nukes launch. But all things considered, this is just a really promising pilot. Uh, Blair is our conduit to this group of men who are charged with monitoring something that could force them to literally destroy the world. And, as each man starts to crack and is systematically dis- dismissed from the unit and from the from the job, the remaining men get time added to their watch of the button. So it starts out that he has that Blair has like a two hour watch on this button where he sits in a room completely solitary. They explain that they don't want 
it to they don't they don't want to have more than one person in the room at a time because they don't because in the event of us needing to launch nukes they don't want to have the person launching them uh have to stop and argue over the decision to do it they need it to they need someone who will just do it at, at their at their beck and call or when when it's necessary so but as as each member is dismissed the uh, the colonel tells them you have more time added to your watch so it piles up and that kind of adds to the mental breakdown of captain blair basically it's a clever way to escalate the mental anguish and the pressure that the men experience basically and uh we're shown we're shown calendars to kind of mark the time that that blair and the men spend on the job uh and this this so there's a scene that takes place on Christmas and Blair speaks to one of the other guys about the implications of the power that they yield and what could stop any of like what could theoretically stop any of them from setting off the nukes at the wrong time. And I feel like having the scene set against a Christmas themed set dressing and caroling music in the background is kind of kind of clever i i feel like the intention was to subconsciously give the audience something that they could relate to while also having the characters speak about something absolutely horrifying and i think that what that accomplishes that it subconsciously put a connection between the audience and the men in the scene and that meld together with the with the dialogue and it was it was effective. I thought that was kind of clever. So throughout the episode Blair has this this stubbornness or this resistance to what is basically somewhat of a mental breakdown. Um he's starting to crack under the pressure of his job, but he's so stubborn and resistant to it that it's it's worrying. Uh it's it's really amazing how he progresses throughout the throughout the episode. It's it's really quite unique and interesting. Um it's as if he worries about the others so much that he and and he worries about what would prevent them from making a mistake and ending the world. So maybe part of it is that his stubbornness to recognize his slipping sanity is out of a sense of duty that he feels he's the only one he trusts with the with the fate of the world. That's not really communicated that clearly, but that was an interpretation that I had of it. His whole story, frankly, can actually be viewed as an allegory for mental illness and the reluctance to identify it, actually. So, I mean, that could be that could be an interesting angle to view it in as well. Um, so, so this pilot episode does have something of a Twilight Zone type spin to it, which makes it all the more interesting to me since it predates the show. And so I wonder if that was more Richard Matheson's influence than anything and not really a something that they had conceptualized at the for the entire series. I, I don't know if that was just happenstance or what, but I will say that while it does have some flares of Twilight Zone-esque feel to it here and there, it's more grounded in reality and everything, but it's also not as refined as the Twilight Zone would be. Like, if you look at the pilot episode of the Twilight Zone, like, that's that's really, really impressive craftsmanship and everything, and this is a little bit a little bit rough around the edges. It's, it's still a fascinating look at the threat of nuclear war that we were facing at that time. And it was a really interesting experience to see this 
pilot episode play out. So at the end of it, Charles uh, Bickford, he comes back on screen and he closes the episode by saying that, okay, so so he says this, and I'll, I'll just quote it because it's a really great quote, and it kind of puts in perspective where the filmmakers were at the time, like where, where maybe the cultural consciousness was at the time, and also maybe as kind of a mission statement for what the show could have been. I, I don't know. Like I said, this is all conjecture. I haven't read any production notes or anything like that. I can't find anything on it. But anyway, so Bigford's closing uh, monologue to the audience is that he closes it by saying the name Captain Blair is fictitious, but there is a Captain Blair among us. Whether he must someday live the drama you've just seen is a matter very much up to us, his fellow man. And I thought that, that was really interesting and really kind of powerful. Like it, it's kind of not, not as powerful as of course, Serling and the twilight zone did uh, two years later with third from the sun, but it was powerful in its own right. And it's a little bit more straightforward. And like I said, it's a little bit rougher. It's not as refined as the twilight zone, but I, I actually quite enjoyed this pilot and I kind of wonder what would have happened if it would have been made in, in full. Um, cause I mean, I kind of would have been interesting, interested to see more. All right. So I think that's going to do it for this week's episode of anthology. Uh, once again, please, if you have the time, go on to iTunes and, uh, rate the show and write a quick review of the show. Uh, every review helps out a lot and I prefer that they're positive <laughs> and, uh, also like the Facebook page because I'm hoping that I'll post more news articles and, and things like that that are related to the Twilight Zone and maybe a little bit of Black Mirror too. I'm still not sure about that. But uh, so so like the Facebook page there. It's facebook.com slash anthologypod. And uh, I'll see you guys next week. Next week is going to be fun. Um, at this point, I haven't seen the episode, but I'm really excited to. It's episode 15. Uh, the title is I Shot an Arrow into the Air. And I haven't seen the episode, so I don't know the context of it, but I think that the bonus review for that is going to be Planet of the Apes. So um, look out for that next week, and uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find past episodes of the show at AnthologyPod.com. And please subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating and review. It helps the show out more than you might think. Of course, I crave feedback or conversation of any kind from the audience, so please email your thoughts and feelings about the show to Matt at ObsessiveViewer.com. Or you can tweet me at Obsessive Viewer and make sure you like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod. Of course, you can also leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099 for a chance to have it played on the show. If you like what you've heard here, I urge you to check out The Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast I host with my friends Tiny and Mike. Also check out the Obsessive Viewer blog at obsessiveviewer.com where I write movie reviews, TV reviews, and the occasional editorial about the business of entertainment. You can find all of that at obsessiveviewer.com. If you want even more obsessive content in your life, subscribe to the Obsessive Viewer subreddit at r slash obsessiveviewer. And check out obsessivebooknerd.com for book reviews, author spotlights, and a general celebration of reading. 
Finally, if you're philosophically curious, check out my friend Tiny's side project podcast, The Secular Perspective, which explores the concepts of faith, religion, and existence from the perspective of secular hosts. You can find that at thesecularperspective.com. Once again, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.